But this morning, Lord willing, we're going to be in 2 Peter once again. We started 2 Peter a couple weeks ago, and we just did the first two verses, the introduction, and we saw a great deal of, of, of wonderful things, even in that introduction that was setting forth for us the rest of this, the rest of this letter. If you remember, 2 Peter follows on the, the same trail of encouragement as 1 Peter was, but this letter was not necessarily written to encourage them and, uh, to endure through persecution, but encouraging them and to warn them of false teaching that may be coming their way. In our passage this morning, it's, it's, it's a glorious passage, um, our, our writer begins to take a suspicious look toward the false teaching and the false teachers by pointing out some glorious, glorious truths. Uh, we must not be a people that only, though, can spot false teachers, but we must be Christians that look to themselves or look at themselves, excuse me, look at themselves to determine and see over and over, always looking at ourselves and determining if we are firm in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's the overall theme of 2 Peter, pointing out the false teachers, but to unpack the idea of what it means as Christians to be firm in the knowledge of God. So that we would be confident, so that we would be strong, so that we would be stable, so that we would be steadfast, that we would be enduring, that we would be fruitful, that we would be a fragrant aroma, all found and firm in the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because as Christians, there's no other foundation by which we or anyone else can stand, but that is Christ. It's also our passage this morning serves as a criteria of what false teaching is not, what the knowledge of God is. We put it up against false teachers and their false teaching and what they are proclaiming. Second Peter chapter 1 in these verses 3 through 11, I think wonderful passages in Second Peter. Um, and I, I also think that this is uh, my wife's favorite passage. And it's in God's providence that she's not here this morning. But if you look this morning with me at verse 3 in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, 
with, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confer, confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy and inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. One of the things about humanity is we never want to fail. We don't want to fall. We don't want to lose. We don't want to fall. We don't want to fail. No one wants to be in last place. No one wants to, no one wants to stumble and trip and fall. That's universal. That's, that's innate within all of us. There's a desire to, to win and to desire to always be on top. Well, what also is universally true is that not everyone has what it takes to be the best. Not everyone has the desire or drive or the ambition to win and not fail. Not everyone has the, the talent, the giftedness or abilities to be the best at whatever it may be. For example, it doesn't matter how much heart or how much desire or how much drive or manifesting I do, I will never be as good as Shaquille O'Neal at basketball. I'm not seven foot tall, and I'm not 300 pounds. You know, nobody wants to fail, even though we've been told our, our whole lives that, that failures are what make us better. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? We know the, the old saying. We've heard it over and over again. You know, how many times did it take Thomas Edison before we finally, uh, finally got the one light bulb that worked? It took thousands of times. How many times did, did Babe Ruth strike out before he hit so many home runs? We forget those parts. In the Christian life, one would hope that Christians would have the same desire to not fail, to not stumble, or worse, humanly speaking, to make a shipwreck of their faith, of their lives. What causes us to fail? What causes us as Christians to stumble and fall away and ultimately maybe even walk away from the faith? And that is sin. Sin. Sin is what causes us to fall. It's what causes us to fall away. It's the temptation to sin. It's the temptation to sin to doubt. It's the sin of unbelief. 
As a Christian, if you've lost that desire of not wanting to fail, then, or yeah, not wanting to fail, then maybe something has gone wrong. Maybe you believe the, the lie that so many have taught, that continue to, to teach despite Romans uh, 6, that to continue in sin because grace will just continue to abound. So go ahead. To believe that you are, here's another one, that if you are God's elect, then, then I can just do whatever I want. Because grace will continue to forgive me and can continue to sustain me. A life of licentiousness that leads to fatalism. Oftentimes, as Christians, we can get discouraged. And we get discouraged in these things because we know and we have that desire. We, we don't want to fall. We don't want to fail. But we also know sin's temptation. We know the flesh. We have the experience. We know that the flesh is, is, is very weak. And still, even to this day, weak no matter how much we have grown and matured in Christ. We know that we still could fall. We know that we still can fail. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, it, it, it can feel as if we're just maintaining. We're just maintaining, right? We're not, we're not making any headways. We're not moving forward. We're not really maturing. But at least we're not going backwards, right? Maybe that's the way that we kind of justify that in our minds is, is at least I'm not, I'm not going backwards in things. I'm just maintaining. We're just stagnant. And we convince ourselves that, okay, that that is okay, but over time, even being stagnant and not growing is probably harder than failing, because at least that failing, we know what to do. We know to repent and trust in Christ and keep pressing on. Sometimes, it, yes, it is just a, a season of life, and sometimes those seasons can be long and they can be difficult, but what we hear from this passage this morning from the Apostle Peter in God's Word is an exhortation to Christians to not be content with stagnation. To not fail, yes, to, to no longer want to fail or desire to fall, but also don't be content with stagnation. Don't be content with just maintaining the status quo with no maturity or no growth in Christ, but rather there's this call, there's this exhortation to continue to pursue, to magnify Christ in your life and in all things, in all ways, and to be maturing in Christ, to be maturing in the knowledge of Christ, to press in and be holy and to grow in your sanctification, to be effective as a Christian, to be fruitful as a Christian. Because as what we see is that he's saying that in Christ, this is what you are meant to be. One of the things that I've picked up on minist in ministry is how many young men fall prey to the kind of unbelief that has them caught up in a perpetual cycle of sin, of falling and failing over and over again. Yes, they get back up again, but yet they continue to fall. And this, there's this stagnation that takes place. And they know they shouldn't fall, and they know they shouldn't do these things, but they continue giving themselves over into sin, and they 
beat up over and over with condemnation. I'm not saying young men are unique to this. I'm sure women, young women and girls have the same issues and experiences, but what I've seen is within men. And I believe that this passage is for them. I believe this passage is for you if you are struggling this morning in the, in the same things and in the same ways. But really, this is a passage for all of us to keep going and to keep growing in Christ and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the intimacy that the knowledge of the Lord and Jesus Christ has. So I have three points from our passage this morning. Four, your continual perseverance in Christ and for your Christian, and for your Christian walk. The first is a Christian must understand that Christ is key. Christ is key. I think you all understand what I mean by that. Those three words. Christ is, is key. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, he is to be the most important part of your life. And knowing him, faith in him, and having a firm understanding of your union with Christ is fundamental and foundational to your Christian life. It all starts and ends with him. There is no Christian life that does not start and end with him. Now this statement of Christ being foundational to the Christian life, that may sound stupid, and it may just sound even kind of redundant, because we should know that, right? Because we're Christians. It's in the name. It's in the name that we, that we follow Christ and that, that he is the, is the key. But this is what false teachers teach. This is what false teachers believe. This is what false teachers are seeking to do, to subvert our minds and to subvert our hearts away from Christ. How often is it assumed and yet never preached that Christ is the center of the gospel? And the only message that we get is do better, be better, do more. How often do, do we not walk by faith, but we walk by our sights? And to continue to considering ourselves, how easy it is that we can forget the gospel. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget that what he has done, and we forget what he is still doing in us. We forget his great and glorious promises. In our passage, in our first part of our passage, in verses 3 and 4, this is exactly what Peter is intending to remind us. Christians who are tempted with false teaching, with false belief, to put the gospel maybe toward the, the last try, whatever it is, living in stagnation, hear what he has to say. Hear the word of God and how powerful it is. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has 
called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. There is a lot there in these first two verses. But what is glaring, what is shining forth that we first need to recognize from just these first, par- first two uh, verses is this very idea of why Christ is key, because you are not. You are not the key to your success. Christ is. These things are not in me. They're not in you. It's not in us, but it is him. It is Christ. It is his divine power. It is he who has called us. It is he, by his grace, he has granted to us to be recipients of his great and glorious promises. It is him. So we start there. Christ is key. We have to Always remember that. That's the umbrella over everything. Everything that we say and everything that we do, how we live, how we walk, how we see in this Christian life is through Christ as the key. And what has Christ been doing? What does he say here? What is he giving us? What is this power? His divine power, what is this? Many want to use this text and say that these are, these are miracles. Meaning, meaning these are the, the faith healings. These are the, uh, what is it, the, the word of faith claims and the name it and, and claim it. But that's not at all in the context here. This has nothing about you getting a new Mercedes. This has nothing to do with that. The context is what? Sanctification. He says Power. The Greek word, as you all know, is dynamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. And so when we see this word, we, we assume that it's like dynamite, right? You light a fuse and, a fuse and boom, the explosion. Wreckage, havoc everywhere, right? Dynamite. And that's the kind of power God wants you to have, that kind of, that kind of power. Boom! Exciting, flash in the pan. The problem is, is dynamite wasn't invented back then. That's not the idea. So to apply that understanding to the word wouldn't necessarily be completely wise. But Peter, what Peter has in mind is a power that's not a flash in the pan, but it's a power that's continual. It's an ongoing, continual, supernatural work in you. And what is that divine power set toward? We already said it. It is set toward your sanctification. That ongoing, continuous, supernatural work within you is for your sanctification. And as God's children, that is his ultimate desire for you. It's for you to grow in the likeness of his son. That's why we call it sanctification, to be sanctified. Romans 8, 29, those who... He foreknew before the foundation of the world. He also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. 
Then in Genesis, Genesis 3, when man sinned, that image was not destroyed, but it was marred and distorted by sin. And now, by the work of Christ and through Christ, man can image him once more because he restored that image. And that's what he's getting at in these verses. By, by God, his divine power is working to transform you into the image of Christ. By his divine power for your sanctification, he has granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. And that's important there. It's not just all things. It's pertaining to all things in life and godliness. Have you ever ordered something off of the internet or maybe even just bought something from Walmart? And you see the package, or it comes in, and you look at it, and you go, you know, there may be some assembly required here, right? Um, now, pretty much everything now is made to ship, so it's all compacted down to its smallest form, and then you, you put it all together from, from uh, uh, full-size furniture to even uh, to all these toys, whatever it may, may be. And you open up the package, you pull out the instructions, and if you're, uh, if you're wise... You'll look at the first part, and it'll tell you. Here's the parts list, right? Here's all the things that it comes with, and then these are the tools that, that you might need. And sometimes it'll, it'll come with a tool. It'll come with the little Allen wrench or the little goofy wrench or the, the, the really terrible screwdriver. And I like to go get my own tools because all the other stuff is kind of trash. Um, but I get all the right tools that, that I need to, to get the job done. And you lay everything out. And you lay everything out. You're counting all your washers. You're counting all your nuts. You're cutting all your, your bolts. And you got your tools. And you make sure everything's there because there's nothing worse than starting that project and realizing they didn't send me a bolt. I'm missing the one bolt. Or even having the correct tool to finish the job. And what Peter is telling us here, and this is very important for us for the Christian life, is that in this project there is nothing missing. There is nothing lacking. There's nothing that's been withhold. There's no extra tools. There's no missing pieces. There's no missing bolts. There's nothing. All the bolts, all the nuts, all the washers, all the doohickeys, and all the batteries are included because his divine power has granted to us all things. Not pick the top five you want, but all things pertaining to life in godliness. We have his word, and it is sufficient. We have his Holy Spirit, and he is good, and he is sufficient, and he has given us each other in the church as his redeemed people to be in together as his church, as the family of God. And here's how I know he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Because the scripture also says here, he says, it happens through the knowledge of who has called us his own glory and excellence. Again, knowledge. The theme of 2 of, of, of Peter. This is, a, this is the, 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 uh, one, of the other, one of the two meanings, right? This is the first meaning. We've been dealing with this meaning since the beginning. Epigenosi. 
This is that, that purple or purpose, uh, uh, personal purple. Recognition of that comes from understanding something, something so clearly and so true. We know it's full and we're intimate with that knowledge. Which means a Christian, again, is, is someone who doesn't just know stuff about God, but we know God. We, we, we know him. We're growing in him. We're going in the knowledge of, of God. This knowledge is, is knowing whose you are and who you are with, who has truly called you and hasn't just called you out of darkness or just uh, out of darkness or just out of the mire and out of the pit of sin, but he has called you to be his own. And he's called you to be his own. He has adopted you into his family. And as it says here, he has called you to his glory. He's called you to his glory and to his excellence. What a calling. So he's talking about our sanctification. To glory and to excellence. The life and godliness, that's holiness. That's a life lived in such a way that it's linked to the eternal. A life of God, a life in godliness is a life that's being lived that's linked to the eternal. We're striving for godliness now in this life because we know he has granted to us all things, right, pertaining to life and godliness. But when Christ returns, we know that that godliness will be perfected and this life will be eternal. So here's the big take here. Sanctification, brothers and sisters, does not come by your own inherent abilities. It just doesn't. Sanctification comes because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of Christ because he's the key. He's the key. And you can believe that there's even more. That's only verse 3, and I'm already like 30 minutes into this. Can you believe there's more? There's more. Look at verse 4 that he's given to us. He's given to us his promises that are precious. Precious means something of great value, something that you, you wouldn't treat carelessly, like, like your wedding ring. When you take that off, you know, you know where you want to put it. Okay, dudes, we're a little bit of a couple of steps back. But the ladies, your weddings are very expensive, too. That's another reason why it's a different, kind of a different category. However, I forgot to put mine on this morning. Anyways, <laughs> I know where it's at, I think. Um, we, you wear those, and when you take them off and you put them somewhere, you don't put it in a careless place. When Christina takes hers off, she doesn't give them the Calvin to hold on to. That's considered careless. But these promises that we have been given, they're They're precious. I'm not going to say it like Smeagol, right? Precious. Why? Because they're great. 
They're not small. They're not little. But they're the, they're the things that we're banking everything on. Everything. And how have we received these great promises? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Through the gospel, he has given us everything we need. He has given us forgiveness. He has given us redemption. He has given us reconciliation. He has given us a union with Christ. He has given us adoption. He has given us love. He has given us joy. He has given us hope. But what he wants you to see this morning in these great promises is this, is that you may become partaker, participants in the divine nature. What? Here's what that means. What Peter is saying here is this, is that Christians, that as you are becoming Christ-like in sanctification, in imaging Christ, you can rest assured in the promise of God that one day you will be made like God. Now, before y'all throw things at me, there's a couple of you ready to wind it up. Here's what this means. He's not saying that you will become divine or your own deity where you get your own planet. Sorry, Mormonism, it's not true. But what he is saying that in this promise, he is saying to Christians that you will be made morally perfect. Morally perfected. And then we will share in the moral excellencies that belong to God. In verse 3, glory and excellencies, the moral excellence, right? The excellencies of Christ is his moral perfection. And we will one day share in that divine nature. Ah, Christ is key. <laughs> in Philippians, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This is his, his purpose for you. This is his, his purpose for you, for your life. Your purpose here in life is not ultimately just to become the best nurse or the best truck driver or the best father or the best businessman or best mother or wife or husband. Those are all true. We should be pursuing to be the best at those things. However, there is something deeper in God's purposes for you and for your life, and they are found in the promise that you will one day be made like his son. And he hasn't held anything back from you to do so. And when Jesus returns, whether it be an hour from now, after I'm done preaching, or in 10,000 years from now, the glorious and excellent Savior, who is even now drawing us into that glory, will make you morally excellent and perfect like him. Now I know, 
One of the questions that I had this week here in this and just kind of thinking about this, that's awesome. That's wonderful news to think about, but that's then. What about, what about now? How do these promises help me now when they just seem so far away? Well, first, you can rest assured that these promises will be fulfilled. Right? There's assurance there that these promises will be fulfilled. And second, we need to realize that even now, by some extent, the Holy Spirit is working in you because you are being transformed, even now, transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Meaning, even now, we are being, even in the flesh, being sanctified. Being sanctified in Christ. And that work of sanctification had begun at conversion. In that conversion, we escape from the corruption of this world. Verse 4, and the sinful the desires, we still face the, the sin. We still face the sin nature. But we also know that Christ has set us free. And if Christ has set us free, then you are free indeed. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves to the, to the desires, those things that deserved judgment. We are, by the grace of God, the recipients of such wonderful things, lest we forget that Christ is the key. If Christ and his work is not your key to the Christian life, if it is not by his divine power, if it's not through the knowledge of him and his promises that you are being sanctified, then the rest of this sermon is not going to be any help to you. Because without the key of his grace... That is Christ and what he has done and what his work continues to do. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how hard you discipline yourself to be holy. Because without Christ, you cannot be holy. Grace drives holiness. Christ is the power behind all of our holiness and all of our obedience. He is the key to our sanctification Therefore, we must keep our eyes affixed on him. I hope we have a clear understanding. I hope that's clear. Because the second exhortation is that if we are going to persevere in Christ, we must supplement our faith. We must supplement our faith. Look at verse 5. He says, for this very reason, meaning... Because Christ has saved you, because Christ has redeemed you, he drew you out of the world of corruption, right? He drew you out of this world of corruption, and he has saved you from the consequences that the world will face. And because he has given you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness, he says, take that truth, that Christ is the key. Take that truth and apply it to your hearts in such a way that now you need to make every effort to supplement your faith. That's what that means. So this is where people can go sideways. Because it seems that faith isn't enough. Right? It says that it seems that maybe, maybe it's saying that faith isn't enough or faith is lacking in some way. And so this brings up the whole debate, right, of, of, of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. 
I like what Spurgeon's response is when he asked to reconcile those two issues. He said, I never try to reconcile friends. And I think that's what Peter is saying here. Peter's saying these, these two things are, are friends. There's friendship of these two things in this passage. Faith that Christ gives us by his grace for salvation, brothers and sisters, is not lacking. It is not insufficient. It is completely sufficient. And it is enough. However, what we also see here is that in the Christian life, Christians exercise their faith by doing what? By believing God's word, by believing his promises, by trusting in what he has said to be for good, and that God is working in us, that he has called us to be holy, right? He's called us to be holy, that he called us to be godly. You see, the call to the holiness is already to be grounded in God's work of salvation that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. Grace always precedes demands. Grace always precedes demands. So when to increase our faith and to exercise our faith, we are exhorted to do what? He says, for this reason, do what? Supplement your faith. To supplement what is, uh, is an interesting word. It had an idea within the Greek culture of, of people who are benefactors. And in a particular usage that it was used was people who would, uh, who would give financially to these choruses that would go around singing, right? They would entertain them and they would give money to these particular, to these particular choruses. Right? And the same idea exists even in our culture today, right? where people give to charitable organizations, to the arts, whatever it may be. Uh, you all give to the, to the, as a church member to the, uh, to the finances of the church, financially to the church. And so in one way or another, right, you are a benefactor. You are supplementing to the needs of the church. And that's the idea of supplementing your faith. Give to your faith these qualities that are listed in verses 5 through 8. The way that this list is written is very interesting, right? We, we like to read it in a way that they're intertwined together, right? That one is, is building on the other. But I don't think that's what he's doing here. I may be wrong, and that's okay. Uh, I, I think what he's doing is he's written it in such a way as a, as a literary device uh, to show this chain of of, of qualities and by which we supplement our faith. And so at the beginning, we see faith as being the root and the end being what? Love. And that is the goal of the Christian life, right? Is love. So the first on the chain after faith is what? Is virtue. We see virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue which is a pretty good translation of the word virtue. We understand somewhat what that means. Other translations have the word moral excellence. I remember we've just been talking about moral excellence, haven't we, in verse 3. This is what was used to describe Christ's moral excellence. And now it is applied to us all as a call to be the virtuous life is a life that is worthy of praise and that it is honorable. It means walking in integrity of a heart. Well, when was the last time we've heard that word? Integrity. We walk in integrity, that we walk in purity. And that even if we sin, we know how to deal with that sin. 
pursue virtue of Christ, of His moral excellencies and His moral uprightness. From virtue to knowledge, we go to knowledge. We've already dealt with knowledge quite a bit this morning and even last time we were together, but this is the other word now, right? We say there's two words being used for knowledge. This is the other one of gnosis, which is the perception from learning and reasoning. It's the information gained from the Word of God to know God more and then to act on that knowledge. This is the knowledge that relates to how a Christian grows in discernment. I love that. I think that makes so much sense right there. Right? That, that knowledge relates to how we grow in discernment. If we're going to live well, and endure and persevere, then we must know God. J.I. Packer says that this is what we are made for. We're made to know God. He writes, what, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else, the knowledge of God. What of all the states God ever sees in man gives him most pleasure the knowledge of himself. And once you have become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems then fall into place in their own accord. The knowledge of God, the pursuit of knowing God, knowing God in his word, knowing the Lord in prayer. The third quality to supplement our faith is self-control. One of the Aspects of being a parent is learning to teach your children self-control. Unfortunately, I don't think that that's much of a trait and a priority anymore for parents because most parents themselves do not have self-control. And we see that reflected in culture. We see that reflected in statistics. Yet parents need to teach their children self-control because if they don't know, learn, if they don't learn how to control themselves, then who will? Self-control and self-restraint is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. To be able to say no to ungodly passions and to know why. To grow up and to do what is right and to grow up in the knowledge of God is also learning what it means to be in self-control. No wonder self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Because self-controlled is also to be filled with the Spirit. The fourth quality in the chain is steadfastness or perseverance or endurance. Not only does the Lord uh, preserve and hold those who are of His elect safely in His hands, but they are also called to steadfastness and, to, and, and this, this call, steadfastness, and to endure and to persevere just runs throughout the Bible, doesn't it? Throughout the New Testament, right? For example, Romans 5, verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Endurance. 
right? The call to be steadfast and, and to endure, right, is what we are called to be, to continually giving ourselves into. Colossians 1, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased from praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, life and godliness, bearing fruit, these qualities, in every good work, and increasing in what? The knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, his divine power. For what? For all endurance and patience with joy. Steadfastness. So for those who have their minds set on above and those who are waiting, right, for the eternal, their eschatological prize and reward in Christ that he has won, they will remain steadfast in the face of temptation, fear, doubt, and intimidation. The fifth quality is to be godly. Godliness. We've already been given everything we need in life and godliness. Did you see the, the connection here, another link that's being made? Godliness is simply living a life that is like God. It's living holy. It's living righteous having faith and being faithful and loving. And again, right, this is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament that Christians are to be obtaining godliness and pursuing godliness in their lives, the quality of godliness. And the last two qualities fittingly focus on what? It fittingly focused right on to, right on love. Two qualities that we, we saw run throughout 1 Peter, right, that showed up, up, up and over again several times. And, and rightfully so, because the direct application of all of these other qualities revealed themselves in what? In how you love one another. In your brotherly affection. Love isn't just a piece of our Christian life. But it is the outcome. It is the fruit. It is the end. It's the kind of love that cares genuinely for one another. It sacrifices for one another. It forgives wrongs. And it humbles oneself when asked for forgiveness. And look again at verse 8. This is important. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If we've ever wondered why it seems as if our Christian life has stalled out or is stagnant, not growing or insared in sin, it's not because God has been holding out. It's because we have not supplemented our faith with these qualities. You've become a sluggard. You've become preoccupied with trivial things. To where it now seems like all you can be is ineffective and unfruitful. 
But what we see in this, these verses here is the Christian's desire is to be neither of those. To, to not be ineffective or to not be unfruitful, right? That's not where we want to be. In fact, Christ has given us all things pertaining to life and God, and so yet you wouldn't be ineffective or unfruitful or nearsighted and blind. Brothers and sisters, the, the result of such things have been devastating to the church. Just devastating. The results of such things have been devastating to people as individuals, into families, and into relationships. Imagine the place someone has to be and to literally have forgotten and is completely blind to every practical way that Christ has cleansed them from their sin. Don't be that person. Don't be that person that when they hear the gospel and they hear the call to holiness and to sanctification, like to make equivocations of their own and say, yeah, but. Daily supplement your faith with these qualities. Recognize them, apply them, and pray for them. And lastly, we must understand not only are we supplementing these qualities, but we also must be diligent. We must be diligent in these things. Diligent. There's another word that we need to kind of bring back. When was the last time you heard the word diligent? We heard we are due quickly. Sometimes that's not good. Things done quickly aren't done well. But diligently means thought out. Done quickly, but done well, efficiently, effectively, fruitfully. He says, diligently here, we are doing what? We're to diligently supplement our faith with these qualities, but also to be diligently confirming our calling, which means also our election. Back in verse 3, Christ does what? He calls us. And we know that Christ's call is effective, right? It, it, it is effective. It, it, it creates faith. God's effective call occurs in history when the gospel is preached. And if this is the case, the term election is distinct, referring to God's predetermined decision to save some the reference to calling an election then does what? It highlights to us, brothers and sisters, his grace. It highlights his grace because he is the one who saves. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who brings us out of darkness into marvelous light. The emphasis here is not necessarily on what God has done, certainly there, but the emphasis is being diligent of the responsibility of those who have been called. The responsibility of those who have been called are to be diligent. To be diligent to make sure your calling and election are sure. And certainly, brothers and sisters, we must consciously be reassuring ourselves of our calling and election by remembering the work of the gospel and trusting Christ 
but contextually, I believe what he is saying to us is that we concretely confirm our calling and election by practicing these qualities listed in verses 5 through 7. For if you do them, you will not fail. And again, speaking to the Christian, where Christ is key, right? That's absolutely necessary in understanding verse 10, and also as much in verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you in an, in, in, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you divorce those two passages from the rest of the, the passage, you can have some real problems. You'll get the ordo salutos out of order. What he's certainly talking about here is definitely salvation. But not about a salvation of works, but a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, brothers and sisters, that is always accompanied by the practice of these qualities. Rooted in faith and always working itself out in love for one another. This is the work that God accomplishes in his people. And as we see here, the prize is what? The kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Do not be neglectful, but be diligent. Be diligent. The proverb says this, and I think this applies here very well, not just in everyday life and work and all these things, but just listen to how it, it plays within this passage. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. If you're ignoring these qualities and you're ineffective and you're fruitful, poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes us rich. And what's the treasure? It's Christ. The riches is him. We're not pressing in and being diligent for worldly treasures, for wealth, or for fame. We are diligent for the treasures in heaven, building for the kingdom that is to come with our eyes and our hearts set toward hope in Christ that we know and will be fulfilled all of life, all godliness, all glory, and all excellence. And if these things are true, then how could we not be diligent at pursuing the things of Christ? I dare you to come up with something greater. In one way or another, I think that all of us have been in this position of stagnant, ineffective, unfruitful at times as a Christian. We have felt the agony. We have seen the disappointment. We have bared the shame and the guilt and even have felt the condemnation. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the good news is that our God and Jesus Christ has given to you all things that you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us his own, to his own glory and excellence, so then on that, the day of Christ, you too will be partakers of his divine nature. 
This isn't a passage or a sermon to heap more guilt or shame, but rather it is to encourage, to build up, that you too and I would believe this and continually be believing this, to believe firmly that the gospel is true and that it is effective and that it produces results and fruits and that is the Christian who is persevering and enduring and growing and maturity, faith increasing because it is supplemented by these qualities. This is how we persevere in this life of sin. And this is how we endure to our inheritance and to the eternal kingdom that has been richly provided by his grace. And all God's people say,